Hey, my name is Anika Chabra, and you're listening to Root and Seed, a podcast about tradition seekers who are sparked to explore, define, and celebrate their family and cultural identity. This season, we're talking about the ways that we celebrate our cultures and heritage. It can be through holidays, like we heard with Brooklyn and Zoe, or in our daily life with the passing of curiosity to future generations like Sunita. But there are countless other ways that we've heard our community celebrate. It's about fun, pride, and most of all, it's about sharing. Last episode, we explored how religion can be presented for a modern generation. This episode, we have a guest who uses a deeper understanding of his own roots to better empathize with other races, cultures, and religions. Full disclosure, this is a longer episode as our guest was gracious with his time and thoughts, so we didn't have the heart to cut more than we did. From migration to multitasking to intergenerational trauma to food and music, this episode covers the whys, the hows, and the whats of cultural discovery and celebration. And we really appreciate that it's not all sunshine and roses. There needs to be the rains and the thorns to afford us those moments of reflection, joy, and celebration. But it does take a scholar to bring this to light so eloquently and with so much lightness as our guest does today. Abdul Rahman Malik is an award-winning journalist, educator, and cultural organizer. His work has spanned the globe. Abdul Rahman is currently a lecturer at the Yale Divinity School, as well as a director of the Muslim Leadership Lab at Yale's Dwight Hall Center for Social Justice. A veteran of BBC Radio, he is also a host of the Aga Khan Museum's popular podcast, This Being Human, which is in its second season. The podcast explores the Muslim faith and all its potential and its facets. Abdul Rahman starts off by speaking about his commitment to being present with his fast-growing 11-year-old son, and then quickly segues to being reflective of his elders, a common midlife sandwich generation root and seed moment. Here he is. I've come to a point in my life where it's like it's like time can't be just on the on the fly anymore. It's got to be part of the schedule. It's got to be intentional as present and intentional. I may be in other spaces. I have to be super present and intentional in these moments of discovery and and growing up. And I think that's one of the things that's, that's driving me at this moment to really think. I think more seriously about 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 the things that I'm that I'm doing. And I think the other thing that's really kind of on my heart right now is that over the last few years, my, my mother's health hasn't been well. And, and since the pandemic travel restrictions were lifted, I've been able to travel back to Toronto more and, and then spend, spend time with the family. But I do feel like I've arrived at that point in my life that I'm witnessing as my parents once witnessed the passage of the previous generation. So many of my beloved aunties and, and, and uncles and elders have, have passed. Some of my own personal mentors during the during the COVID pandemic have passed. There isn't a week that goes by that we don't hear about a family member, a loved one, an auntie or uncle from the mosque that we grew up with. People who are like parents to me and my siblings begin the next part of their journey. And and I think that that is also weighing heavily at this moment because it does feel like the passing of the of the baton. And, and it also reminded me, Anika, of watching my parents when they were my age, even though I never really thought about 
their age very much. I think particularly in South Asian culture, we don't really think about our parents' age. They're just old and older. Um, and, and we just sort of consider them in like a rank. There's a rank of old and one who is owed, you know, fidelity, et cetera, et cetera. And I think back to, to my parents sort of dealing with and engaging with their own parents' passing, my grandparents passing away, elders passing away. And, and often for my parents, they were very far from the places where that was happening. They weren't able to get back to, to Pakistan in time for the funeral. My father was not present for either of his parents' funerals in, in Pakistan. And, and that's got me thinking a lot about, you know, what does it mean to be a witness to the passage of generations? And, and also, what does it do to us? What does it do to our generation? Is it a moment of sadness, which it is? Um, is it a moment, uh, is it a time to remember, which of course it is, but also is it a time to kind of, for, for lack of a better term, to renew our covenant with who we want to be and the kind of world that we, that we want to see. And, and, I, and I think I'm thinking about that a lot. I'm thinking about death a lot and I'm thinking uh, in, not in a morbid way, but it, kind of like, you know, I'm at that age now, well past middle age and, and in, in my own journey, God willing, we have many decades left and but nevertheless there's the inexorable there's the inexorable trotting the path to that to that time and and you're like there's more behind me than there is in front of me and it really makes you think about not only what are priorities but you know what am what legacy uh are are we leaving behind for not only our our kids but the but the communities that we that we work in and the relationships that we've um really cultivated over our lifetimes. What a gorgeous expression in being a witness to the passage of generations and the privilege that that witnessing provides and how it really is a time to think about what type of future we want to conceive, construct, and experience. Love that. Abdul Rahman has clearly had such incredible influences in his life inside and outside the Muslim community, resulting in a strong sense of self. We spoke next about the effects of the India-Pakistan partition in 1947, an event that has had a lasting effect on so many lives, but one that does really need more color painted upon it. The experience of the creation of these two countries affected all those who were there, but there's something very specific, right, about what up until really, I think now is one of the largest migrations of human beings in the world in the shortest period of time. 12 to 14 million people left homes and crossed borders across a, a frontier that was fraught with inflamed hatreds, an untenable situation created by the British Raj. And then a lifetime of processing the home that you left behind, the friends that you left behind. You know, our grandparents remembered their friends who were Sikh and Hindu. And I've spoken to Sikh and Hindu friends who remember their parents, who say their parents remember their friends who were, who were Muslim and, and, what, and what those communities were like and how they, how they existed and coexisted. I think there's so much to talk about. In that process, and, and I think there's wonderful work that is being done by incredible scholars, researchers, ethnographers, mostly women, who are going back and finding the artifacts and the stories 
and telling the everyday stories of partition. Because, you know, I, I, the other problem is, Anika, is that so much of the story of the creation of India and Pakistan has been told by men, has been told by historians, has been told by those who were complicit in the devilry that took place in those, in those years, that, that often we're not getting a picture of ordinary people caught up in these extraordinary political moments and what it what it meant for them and we owe it to ourselves and our kids to be able to communicate that i haven't really been able to i think yet communicate to my son what happened in 1947. abdul rahman and i had a moment connecting on the impact of this event on our families in fact at one moment we had shivers down our spines thinking of both of our families being forced from their homes at exactly the same point in time and crossing borders. His from India to Pakistan, mine from Pakistan to India, both to countries now defined by religion and religion alone. The trauma has seeped into generations and it's real and Abdul unpacks that next. Yeah, Anika, you said something about like the impact of something like partition. I have only, I'm only just beginning to realize the generational trauma associated with that. What my grandmother went through until the very end of her life, and she was a re remarkable, resilient, incredible personality and woman, but also, you know, experienced a lot of tragedy. And I, and I wonder sometimes, how is that generational trauma landed, landed on me or, or, or my sibling? How do we process things? Part of it is about movement, actually, Anika. I've, I've thought about this a lot. Migration and movement. And I, and I say movement because uh, at the beginning of Salman Rushdie's controversial novel, The Satanic Verses, I, th I think he quotes uh, the, the English author Daniel Defoe. And, and he talks about that the curse that God placed upon the devil, that he could not step in the same place twice. And, and, you know, writers like Rushdie and others have spoke about the curse of partition, the promise and peril of midnight when these two nations were created. But also that line has always stuck with me because there's something about migration and movement. I, I now kind of realize both my parents' families migrated. My father and mother migrated. I and my sister have ended up migrating. My uh, paternal grandfather, my dada, my father's father, had actually left India before partition to work in the, in the, in the sands of Saudi Arabia on, at the Arab American Oil Company. And in fact, my father, after leaving um, Amritsar, actually went to the Arabian desert where he lived for 10 years, where my father worked as one of the foreign workers. At, uh, when my grandfather worked, excuse me, as one of the foreign workers at the Arab American Oil Company, and he was a stenographer. He was he was literate, so he was in the he was in the office. And and you know we used to hear stories about his Egyptian and Sudanese and Palestinian colleagues who who he would work with. I realized that movement is like in our blood. We need to move, and it's not just like hey, we need to travel. I feel like we need to move. Like I've now moved country. I never thought that would happen. But I just feel like it was it was natural to do that. And I think folks like ourselves and, and others who you featured on this podcast, we have a superpower. And our superpower is our two feet can be in four places at the same time. We work in metaverses. 
We move between languages, geographies, cultures, religions. We code switch so fast that we have multiple codes running at the same time, right? We're not even switching between codes that are on and off. They're on all the time. It's just like the code that we choose to speak through at any, at any given moment. In some ways, we move that fast, right? Like we're speaking in English, I'm hearing in Punjabi with, with one ear, and then all my kind of Canadian, Muslim, male, whatever sensibilities are kind of processing it on the inside, and then you got to make sense of it. We're dancing all the time between these realities. And, you know, I think for the longest time, we were made to feel weird, unsettled, right? Othered, marginalized, right? Um, not clear. You haven't figured yourself out. You haven't, you don't know who you are. Well, I know who I am and I'm all these things. And I think to grow into the owning of all these things and not just legitimizing it for others, who cares about that? Legitimizing it for ourselves, that we, we are complex and we have the right to be complex. We have the right to switch between, and it's powerful because we can navigate spaces in ways that other people cannot. And, and I, I now own that as a badge of pride, not because I did something about it, but this is the gift, right? This was the gift that was bequeathed to me by God and the ancestors. It's a powerful place to be. And, and especially in the world that we're in now, increasingly complex, increasingly intersectional, uh, we're built for the intersectional world. And, and what a gift that our ancestors gave us. We then started talking about names as a child of the 1970s, born in a trying time, marked by violence, war and recession and hatred. Abdul Rahman was given his name, which literally means servant of the merciful in hopes of giving him a chance of getting through such a turbulent world. He reflected that he is drawn to that and has surrendered to be a means, a muse to manifest divine mercy in a broken world. It's only fitting that he hosts a podcast, which is described beautifully as a kaleidoscope of contemporary Muslim experience and identity, together with the Aga Khan Museum. We love the story of how it got its name from a beautiful roomy poem, The Guest House, and begins with the line, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. They have likened the Muslim experience to being just like the human experience, so true and something that I think we all can understand. But it was asking Abdul Rahman about one of his favorite moments and interviews that really got us thinking. I think about my, my friend uh, Tanya Munira Williams, who is a British, Afro-Caribbean poet, broadcaster, women's studies uh, scholar, playwright, and, uh, you know, appears regularly on the BBC. And I enjoyed my interview with her so much. And then we've been friends for many, for many years. And, and you know, I've, I've known her through her work as a poet, as, as a hip hop artist. But you know what, I, I, I just, I loved her description of her mother's Christian faith, and how as she's grown into her being Muslim, her mother's Christian faith means more to her now than ever. And, and I think the lesson for me, I think has been latent. It's something that Malcolm X said in the closing pages of, of his autobiography, is he said that since becoming a Muslim in Mecca, which was his, you know, the, the next stage of his, of his spiritual evolution, he said, I've found that I have friends who are 
Democrats and, and Republicans, capitalists and, and, and communists. He goes on and on. He says, he says, even few Uncle Toms. And that's Malcolm's great humor, you know? And, and I love that line. And I go back to it a lot. I share it with students a lot. It was like as Malcolm and my friend Munira became more confident, more at home, saw their faith and their identity as a source of power, it also became a source of generosity. And that is it, isn't it? As, as we grow in our faith, a litmus test if we're really growing in our faith is how much we are able to embrace and accept difference and to see others, to be empathetic, to be compassionate, to be graceful, and be confident in the humility that comes with, with faith and identity. That is a really powerful litmus test now. And so if I see people who, who grow more into their, their faith, their traditions, their identity, and that becomes a source of closing themselves off to other people's human experience, it's like a warning to me that something is wrong. And that doesn't mean that we don't stand against injustice. Absolutely not. That doesn't mean that we are uncompromising with the red lines of, of you know, along gender justice and against anti-Black racism and against misogyny and against homophobia and against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and so on and so forth. But it's also to say that my confidence in who I am and where I am in my relationships also allows me to be open to others because I'm not threatened. In fact, I am in a mode to learn and engage because I'm not threatened. Because it's when we feel a lack of confidence, it's when we feel on uneasy ground that we're like, oh, if I engage with you, if I speak to you, I might become sullied. I, my ideas might become even more confused. It's through this confidence and humility that we engage the world. And that's something that comes across in the podcast over and over again, which is it's kind of these incredibly accomplished, confident people, many of whom you won't read about, you know, on the headlines of a newspaper, but, but who deserve books to be written on them. Uh, I found them all to be incredibly open to the possibilities of being human and engaging in humanity. And that's, and that is, if that's not a source of hope, I think in these, in these strange, you know, long pandemic times, I, I don't know what is. Wow, what a realization that as we grow in our faith, we have the ability to embrace difference and be empathetic and compassionate to others. What a superpower and a message that everyone has the ability to activate. Okay, back to the season's podcast theme, Celebration. We got right to it and asked Abdul Rahman, what does celebrating your culture mean to you? And without a second thought, it was food and how the pandemic has given him pause to think about our relationship with food and cooking and the dizzying diversity of South Asian cuisine. Every meal for me is opening up the cookbooks and I try to look for something new and there's kind of family favorites. It started conversations with my mom that especially at this time that she's been, you know, terribly unwell, were really meaningful. You know, all of a sudden there would be a joy, like she'd be, she'd be, she'd be in pain, she'd be hurting. But the moment we start talking about cooking, and I realized it's it's one of those enduring joys. You know, as our parents get old, they love YouTube. Who would have thought, right? YouTube was created for the over 60, I'm convinced. And they love watching the food programs from Pakistan, right? Cooking on the street, chefs, they have all their favorite. I mean, and I would just, 
start talking about it. And now whenever I cook something, I'll call her and say, me, I'm making this korma tonight, or I'm going to try this recipe. What do you think? And, and she'll say, well, make sure you add that. I said, it's not the recipe. And she's like, okay, take a, take a stab at it. So recently I was back home. I had discovered a dish that I'd never heard of before, Amritsari Harissa. It's, it's like Halim. For those of your listeners who know what Halim is, it's like Halim's sister, but it's very different as well in texture and, and in preparation. I had actually seen a YouTube video about Harissa and I like called my mom. I'm like, why have I never heard of this dish before? She goes, oh yeah, you know, Amritsari Harissa, it comes from Kashmir. Kashmir has brought it to Amritsar, then they brought it to Lahore. And then I talked to my dad, I'm like, Abu, have you had this? He says, I had it when I, she said, I used to have it when I was young. Um, I had it when I was young amongst the Amritsaris. And he said, I, I had it in Lahore because in an area of Lahore, they make it because migrants from that part of, uh, part of Punjab had settled in, in Lahore. And I was like, I got to watch some recipes. So I got recipes out on the internet. When I was back in Toronto for three weeks over the holidays, and we sat down, we watched like 12, 13 YouTube videos on making harissa. I constructed a recipe. I'm like, I mean, we're going to do it. It took two days to cook. It is a kind of a stew made from cracked wheat, rice, um, lentils, and, and mutton that is cooked over a long period of time and then flayed. And it's this hearty winter stew. It's amazing. I made a proper dig of it. Like it was, that was a lot. And, and then what you do is you decorate it with these chicken and lamb kebabs that you put on top and you do a tarka with the ghee and you, and you pour it over and then you serve it. And you know, it's amazing. And it has a, a sticky gloopiness to it because the star, the starches, the starches come out. Anyways, I, I had a video in my mind from YouTube and I kept watching it. I said, this is the consistency. And my mom and I went back and forth. You know, it's something that I'll remember for the rest of my life. My mom's joy in that dish to having been able to connect with it. But also then, you know, in this pandemic period where we're opening up a little bit more to be able to, she was able to invite her friends, you know, her, her closest two friends to enjoy the harissa. And my, my sister, you know, offered to take it around to, to, to friends and neighbors, you know, who mom would love sharing her food with. And so, you know, it was delivered to them. And, and so, you know, we had dozens of people eating from this big dig of, dig of harissa. I can tell you it was bloody hard work. Um, it, it, really, it really was. But I can also tell you that, that the, the satisfaction and, and the joy and really the celebration of, of producing this dish. And my mom finally admitted, she said, I have, I've actually never had the dish. And I said, you've never had harissa. She goes, all my life I've heard about this harissa, but I've never had it. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Ah, the joy of sharing meals, food, and other people enjoying it. What a gift, not only to the recipient, but to the maker. That's an idea that really transcends all cultures. Just beautiful. Of course, we always end with a question from the Root and Seed conversation tool. We asked Abdul Rahman, what tradition would you like to reclaim? And this is what he said. Dance would have been very much part of our Punjabi traditions, Bhangra in particular, Ludi Lagana, Yewo, you know, and, and I feel like I missed out on that growing up. I think later into the 90s, early 2000s, my friends started getting married and then the Henna Nights and, 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 and the Mendy Nights became a little bit more alive and activated. And I think we became more a little bit more comfortable in our own skin around it. It took a, it took a while. 
I would definitely say that if it was a tradition I wanted to reclaim, it would be the, 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 that tradition of social dance, you know, of, and I love watching on YouTube. I love watching all the Bhangra artists, right. And all the Bhangra schools from Brampton who have all their, they're kind of cool. YouTube, they're traveling around the world. And, and, you know, I, like, I, I, I love that. I love that old school nineties, nineties, you know, especially UK Bhangra scene. And, and I love the dance. And I feel like as a, as a Punjabi man, it's kind of in me because I hear that music and it like, it like, the light goes on and it's like it's like you know i'm ready for it you know i'm, I'm going i'm gonna i'm gonna get it and i'm a big guy and i don't move very well i feel kind of like a, a hippo trying to dance on, on on two feet and it's it's really probably very uncomfortable for others to watch but 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 sometimes i find myself doing it on my own like you know dancing with myself so to speak I love that after such a reflective, deep conversation that Abdul Rahman's lighter side came out with his love of Indian dance and Bhangra. This interview was filled to the brim with golden expressions of thoughts that underscore the gift of being able to be intentional with understanding your story. Towards the end of the interview, we reflected on the fact that all the work that platforms like Root and Seed and This Being Human are doing to capture and document those stories is really so important. And we love the way that he expressed that in one final thought. A, a thousand flowers really need to bloom. And I don't, I don't say that in a glib way. I, I think that the telling of our stories is a sacred act. The preservation of our stories is a sacred act and it's a necessary act. If we don't do it, I think God's going to hold us accountable for not doing it because, because we have an opportunity now to amplify the stories of the ancestors, of the people around us, and also in a small way to contribute to, to that repository of knowledge that generations hopefully ours and the and, and and these amazing young people with their dynamism and their tech savvy and their intersectional identities and their wokeness can uh, can can sort of take and, and 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 run with if that doesn't inspire you to capture your own stories we're not really sure what will what an incredible conversation filled with discovery, reflection, laughter, and lots of mutual respect for our efforts. A huge thank you to an amazing human that needs to keep doing more and more to better this world. Next episode, we talk to Asha Frost, an Indigenous medicine healer, author, and mother who is not only uncovering the injustices and giving them a voice, she's also providing the tools for healing and does so in such a way that transcends her heritage and background, making her an inspiration for all. Root and Seed is hosted by me, Anika Chabra, executive produced by Jen Sarapong Mandel, and edited by Camille Blake.